I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, and this morning we come to the very last section of the very last chapter of John's Gospel. John 21, beginning in verse 15 and reading through verse 25. Please give your careful attention to God's word. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's a cute little story that I have heard many times over the years as I've been around the church. I've heard it used as sermon illustrations and in Bible studies, and it's a very popular story among Christians. It goes like this. There was a little boy who was awakened in the middle of the night by a thunderstorm loud thunderstorm and he was terrified and so he shouted down the hall to his parents he said mommy daddy I'm scared and dad being a typical dad didn't want to get out of bed so he shouted back down the hall don't worry son God loves you very much and he will take care of you to which the little boy replied daddy I know that but right now I need someone with skin on. It's a cute story. I don't usually tell cute stories, but uh, I thought it, 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 as I was puzzling over that story this week, when I thought how it might apply to the message today, I thought, why is that story popular? Why do Christians retell that all the time? Well, I think it speaks to two things. First of all, it speaks to the fact of our wonder and amazement that the God of all the universe did put skin on in order to save us. That the eternal Son of God added to his divine nature a human nature and came and dwelt among us 
so that he might go to the cross to die for our sins. But the other reason I think that story strikes a chord with us is somewhat unrelated. I think it strikes a chord with us because we don't like to talk about it among Christians, but it's hard to love someone that you can't see. It's hard to love someone who doesn't have skin on in the sense of somebody that we can see and hear with our physical eyes and our physical ears, somebody that we can touch. How do you love Jesus when you can't sit down and have coffee with him over breakfast? How do you love Jesus when you can't run up and give him a big hug when you get home? How do you love Jesus when you can't come and cry on his shoulder when you're going through a difficult time? How do you love someone that you can't see, hear, or touch? We wrestle with that. Remember back in chapter 20, though, Jesus was talking to Thomas. The risen Christ appeared to the disciples, and he appeared to Thomas, and Thomas bowed down before him and said, My Lord and my God, and you remember how Jesus replied to that? Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, in some sense, in some real sense, it's better to know and love the Lord without seeing him, to know and love him by faith without seeing, hearing, and touching, that somehow that's better for us. How is that true? This last story that John tells in his gospel is a very personal, very touching encounter between Jesus and his disciple Peter. The risen Christ, as you remember the last time we talked about John chapter 21, the risen Christ has appeared again to his disciples, this time as they had had a very unfruitful night of fishing on the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And by means of a miraculous huge catch of fish that he produced just by speaking the word, they were reminded, we saw last time, of how they had been called to be fishers of men. That now he has died in our place and been raised from the dead and that he was about to go to the right hand of the Father in heaven. They were given the mission to be fishers of men, to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. But there's an elephant in the room as he gathers with them after that miracle. He cooked them a meal of a breakfast of fish on a campfire. And as they gathered around that campfire, there's something that needs to be talked about. And Jesus takes the initiative to bring it up. You see, Peter was there. And there had to be some serious doubts about Peter's status as a disciple, as an apostle. Because you remember, Peter was the one who stood outside the palace of the high priest Caiaphas warming himself by the fire, and denying three times that he even knew Jesus while Jesus was on trial for his life. Denied three times that he even knew him, even to a servant girl. And they all would have remembered how Jesus once said to them, to his disciples, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. So what's Peter's status among the apostles. 
It's apparent that Jesus had forgiven Peter, that he had been reconciled to Peter. We, we don't know about those interactions that Jesus had directly with Peter before this, after his resurrection. But there appears to have been some forgiveness. There appears to have been some reconciliation. But that doesn't answer the question of, is Peter still an apostle? Is he still trusted to be a leader of the church of Christ? This is a controversy that has arisen many times in the history of the church. Many times. Usually after a time of intense persecution. Back in the mid-200s A.D. After the church had gone through some real deep suffering. They had an issue to deal with because during that time of intense persecution under the Roman throne. Many Christians and many leaders even. In order to spare their lives to avoid suffering. Had denied the faith. They had offered incense to the emperor. They had denied Christ. And so once the persecution was over and those Christians and those leaders in particular wanted to be restored and reinstated, the church had to deal with it. Well, should they be allowed? In that time, it was called the Novation Controversy because Novation was a church leader who took a hard line, said no, leaders should not be restored to office. And it split the church for a while. Even during our own Presbyterian history, if you know the history of the Presbyterians in Scotland, there were many pastors who, in order to keep their position as pastors in Scottish churches, they compromised. They allowed the English throne to impose unbiblical practices upon their church so that they could retain their position. And after the persecution was over, the Presbyterians had to decide, what do we do with these men who compromised, who in a sense denied Christ? So it's a, it's, a, it's a relevant issue. The church has always had to come back to. Well, here we have Jesus dealing with Peter. And the disciples are gathered around the campfire, which obviously would have reminded Peter of something. And Jesus calls him out in front of the other apostles. This whole dialogue centers around one central question. Do you love me? He said to Peter. That's an important question that the Lord really, in essence, asks of all of us. Do you love me? Do you love Jesus this morning? How do you know? How do you measure that? How do you identify? What's it look like to love Jesus? Someone who you can't see with your eyes, hear with your ears, or touch with your hands. How do you love him? Well, first of all, the thing we have to see is not something so much stated here, as, but is clearly implied, is that it's not about you loving Jesus first and foremost, it's about him loving you. You need to receive grace from Christ before you can even think about loving Christ. He's the initiator in your relationship with him. He's the one who seeks you. You do not seek him. The first time Jesus asked the question, he asked it in this way. Notice the wording very carefully because it's different from the other two. The first time Jesus asked the question of Peter, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? In other words, what he's saying is, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Wow, talk about putting Peter on the spot. And what Jesus is very carefully reminding Peter of is how just days or weeks earlier, Peter had boasted about how much he loved the Lord. 
He had boasted about how devoted he was to Christ. You remember just before his crucifixion, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus said to all his disciples, he told them what was coming, and he said, you all will fall away because of me this night. They're all going to desert him. You remember how Peter replied? Peter said, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Boasting. Do you you hear what he's saying there, actually? I want you to catch this. Don't miss this. What Peter is saying to Jesus is, you're wrong, Lord. Don't ever start a sentence that way. (laughs) Most foolish way to start any sentence. You're wrong, Lord. You don't know my heart. That's what he was saying. You don't know how much I love you. You don't know how devoted I am to you. I will be there to the last moment. And the truth is, is that Peter didn't know his own heart. He was trusting in his own love for Christ, his own passion for Christ, his zeal for Christ, his devotion to Christ. That's what he was trusting in. He didn't realize that that was all a gift from Christ. And he didn't have nearly as much of it as he thought he did. But now, here, you know, actually, let me take you back to chapter 13. Listen to this dialogue. See it in light of what's to happen. Back in chapter 13, again, this is shortly before the crucifixion. And Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? This is chapter 13, verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So here we see Peter now, after his three denials of Christ, after the crucifixion of Christ, after the resurrection, and he's a changed man. He's broken. He's humbled by the Lord. And you hear it in his response, because listen carefully to what he says. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Where is he basing his confidence of his standing with Christ? He's not basing it in his own devotion, in his own effort, in his own zeal. He's not comparing himself to the other disciples anymore. He's saying, Lord, you know me. I'm an open book. He's actually, this is some pretty high Christology here. You know me. You know my heart. You know how much love I have. And I don't know if he fully understood at that moment, but he actually should be saying, you gave whatever I have, you gave to me. I didn't do this on my own. Instead of saying, you don't know me, Lord. You don't know how much I love you. saying, you know me completely, Lord. You know exactly how much love I have for you. And thank you for giving it to me. It's the humble attitude that David had. I love the humility that David has as expressed in Psalm 139. This is the attitude of a humble believer who desires to love Christ more, but realizes how dependent he is upon the grace of the Lord for him to love the Lord. So listen to how this is worded. Psalm 139, this is David, as he looked forward to the Christ to come. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And he concludes the psalm with these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. 
That's a heart that's been changed by the grace of God. That's a heart that says, I want to love you, I want to obey you, I want to follow you, but you must work in me first. Jesus is the initiator. We do not pursue Christ, he pursues us. We do not seek after Christ, but he's always seeking after us. And whatever desire is within us, whatever effort, whatever devotion is in us, it's only because he first sought us out, because he first pursued us. And here, in this instance, you see Jesus pursuing Peter in spite of his denials. There is no sin so great that the love of Christ cannot seek you out and find you and bring you to himself. In 1 John chapter 4, the same apostle John who wrote this gospel wrote later in this epistle, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the the one, the sacrifice, the lamb of God that bore the wrath of God in our place that we deserve. God loved us and sent his son so that we might love him. He goes on to say in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Don't ever forget that. Any love that you have in your heart for Jesus Christ, it's because he first loved you. Do you remember the prostitute? who came and washed Jesus' feet with her hair and with her tears. Do you remember how Jesus responded to that display of love and affection? He said, those who are forgiven much, love much. You want to love Christ more? Come to him for grace. Come to him to be renewed in his forgiveness and grace. And you'll see your heart expand by his grace to love him more. That's why we go to church. We don't go to church to seek after Christ. We don't go to church to prove our devotion to Christ. We don't go to church to earn favor with Christ. We go to church to receive grace, to be renewed in his forgiveness, to have our hearts enlarged so that we can love him and keep growing in our love for him. That's why we gather around the Lord's table. That's why we read our Bibles in the morning. That's why we pray. Not to pursue Jesus, but so that he can channel his grace into us to change us, to enable us to love him. That's where it begins. If you get that point down, then we can move on to points two and three. But don't ever get points two and three before point one. He's got to give you grace. He's got to pursue you. He's got to change your heart. He's got to fill you with love for him. And then you can respond with points two and three, which brings us to point two. To love Jesus, you must love his people. This is such a simple point that he emphasized over and over and over through his entire time on earth and through his apostles later. He kept emphasizing it, but we keep missing the point. If you want to love Jesus, you have to love his people. He asked Peter three times to reaffirm his love. And by doing that, he is publicly, before the other disciples, reinstating Peter to the office of apostle. Because he's saying, you denied me three times. I'm asking you to, in, in almost like a formal, formal uh, official type of ceremony here, say, I want you to affirm your love for me three times. And once he had done it the third time, or after, after, actually after every time he affirms it, Jesus responds by saying, feed my sheep. Tend my flock. 
Be a shepherd. Take care of my people. Feed them. Let me speak to the elders particularly here for a moment. Don't ever forget that in your job description, as Christ has called you to serve him, your first priority, in essence your only priority, is to feed the sheep. I say that because speaking as one who has been called to that office, it's so easy to forget that that's what I'm here for. We get caught up in our programs and our our, our activities and our building programs and everything, you know, just all the doing of church, and we forget that the leader is called to feed the sheep. That's what we're here for. That's really the only thing we're here for, to equip the body to serve Christ. And as you look at the American church, it's not hard to see that American sheep are weak and sickly, and addicted to spiritual junk food. And the ones who are going to be called to account for that, first and foremost, are going to be the shepherds who didn't feed the sheep. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. If the shepherds feed the sheep, the sheep grow healthy and strong And the kingdom expands. That's the way it's supposed to work. But what about the rest of you? Those of you who aren't in teaching and preaching positions, what's this saying to you? It applies first and foremost to the apostles and secondly to pastors and teachers. But what about the rest of you? I think it applies as well. I keep hearing people say, you know, Jesus is okay, but I just can't stand his followers. That's actually a very popular sentiment these days. I like Jesus, I just don't want anything to do with the church. Jesus couldn't be any more clear, here or anywhere else. He could not be more clear about this. You cannot love Jesus Christ without loving the church. Matter of fact, that's how you love Jesus. That's what he's saying here. You want to love me? You love my people. Matter of fact, this whole exchange, we think it's about Jesus restoring Peter, but the whole exchange is about how much Jesus loves his church. That's what this passage is really about. Back in chapter 13, listen to what he said. Right before those, the the verses that are immediately precede where Jesus predicts uh, Peter's denials, in the verses right before that, in chapter 13, listen to what Jesus said to all his disciples. Listen carefully. I know this is very familiar. But listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. A new commandment I give to you. Can you imagine how their ears perked up at that? I mean, they had the whole Old Testament. And Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Matter of fact, I think what he's saying here is, I'm going to summarize my will for you as the church in one statement. And this is what he says. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how you can know you love Jesus is if you love his people. Now, I think a lot of us, we hear that and we think of the Old Testament teaching, you know, the summary of the law, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And so you hear Jesus say that. I'm giving you a command. I want you to love each other. And you say, well, wait, didn't he forget the most important one? Didn't he forget how we're to love God? No, he didn't. Because he says, if you want to love me, you need to love my people. That's what love to me looks like. That's how the world knows that you belong to me, is because you love each other. 
That's how important the church is. Remember, on Judgment Day, how are you going to know the difference between the sheep and the goats, between believers and those who aren't believers? It's going to be how they treat one another. Remember how Jesus summarizes what he'll say on that day. He says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. You want to love me? Love my people. 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, listen to this verse, this, this, in light of what we're saying about loving a God that we can't see, touch, or hear. He says, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you love Christ, you must love the church. You must love the brothers and sisters in Christ. You must. And when I think about church members, and we're all, you know, I'm not saying that we are, there are four different kinds of members, but we all fit into this category to one degree or another. There's four kinds of members in the church in terms of how they love the church, in terms of how they serve in the church. The first kind is those who have that lazy consumer mentality. They come into the fellowship, the assembly of the church, and they say, what can you do for me? How can you meet my needs? Then there's a second kind who comes into the church and gets involved, serves, works. But to them, it's a, it's a meritocracy. It's, 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 it's a way to work your way up the ladder. It's a way to, to become a better Christian or closer to Jesus by working hard. And then you can look around at your other disciples and say, I'm so much better than they are. That's what Peter was doing before. And then there's a third category that get involved, they serve, they work hard, but then they resent it. And they say, why is it always me? Why am I always in the nursery? Why am I always doing the stepping stones? Why am I always there on work day and nobody else is? And they resent it. And if that's how you feel about your service to the church, then let me tell you, you're not loving Christ. Whatever you're doing in the church, it's not motivated by love for Christ. There's only one way to love Christ by loving his church, and that's to say, I love serving God's people because Christ first loved me. I'm so thankful for what he's done for me that I rejoice in the privilege and opportunity to serve my brothers and sisters in the church because by doing that, I show love for the Lord who saved me. Now, we're all all over the map in all four of those categories. I'm not saying that there actually are four different kinds of Christians there. I'm just saying, where are you this morning in your service to Christ by loving him through loving the church? Which brings to the third point. You love the church, and then thirdly, to love Jesus, you must follow him. Sounds simple. Isn't that what a disciple is? Somebody who follows Christ. But that's what Jesus tells Peter. In spite of three years of training, he still needs to say to him, you follow me. As a matter of fact, he says it twice, if you noticed in the passage. Follow me. In verse 18, he puts that in the context of a very cryptic prophecy, and I think it helps us to see into what Christ's intentions are here. He says, when you were young, speaking to Peter, when you were young, reminding him of his early, vigorous days of youth, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when, in the future, you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. 
Now, if there's one thing that you know about Peter by studying the Gospels, is that Peter was a very ambitious man, very impulsive man, aggressive, self-reliant, confident. That's the kind of man that, that Peter was when Jesus called him. There's nothing wrong with those basic aspects of, of your personality if they're based in the right thing. But the problem with Peter is they're based in the wrong things, based in pride. But Peter certainly was a can-do sort of guy. And so Jesus, knowing Peter, he says, now I want you to remember your days of youth, Peter. He's probably middle age, close to approaching at least middle age at this point. He says, remember when you were a young man. Remember how strong and vibrant you were. Remember how energetic you were, how you were ready to go out and take on life and the idealism, the vision, the dreams that you had. He says, but also I want you to contrast that with where you will be one day when you're not going to be able to dress yourself and somebody's going to help you get dressed in the morning. When you're not going to be able to go wherever you want but someone else is actually going to lead you somewhere you actually don't want to go because you're not going to be in control of your life anymore. You know, again, Jesus is saying to Peter, the can-do guy, he's saying you need to be humble. If you're going to be a leader, I'm restoring you to leadership. To be a leader, you need to understand the essence of leadership. You need to understand the essence of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Christ? Well, you need to understand that to follow Christ means you depend upon him. He is your Lord. It's not about what you're able to do, but what he's able to do in you and through you. You know, I've actually been humbled. The Lord's using kind of an unusual means the last few years to humble me in this regard. Church softball. The softball team. I was so excited when I came here three years ago that Oakwood had a softball team because I hadn't, baseball was my life when I was a kid. And I, I lived it, ate it, breathed it. it. It was everything to me. And I hadn't played organized baseball or anything since I was a young man. So I came here three years ago, and I was excited to play on the Oakwood softball team. It's been a humbling three years. <laughs> it's been grievous to me to realize how much of my abilities have drifted away over the years. And it's been very humbling to me to stand there in the outfield and see a, a line drive hit into the gap and instead of immediately, instinctively running and diving to catch the thing, instead of thinking, no, it's not worth it. You know. <laughs> Five months of recovery is not worth, even if it's a spectacular catch. In a related note, I was talking to one of our more experienced members, who we all love dearly. And she was rejoicing a couple weeks ago as I talked with her about how, at her age, she still has her driver's license. And reminded me of how many times I've had to watch elderly people give up the freedom of a driver's license. That's traumatic. Traumatic to be that helpless and dependent on others. See, that's what Jesus is pointing Peter to. He's saying, understand that the day is coming when you're not going to be able to dress yourself. And you're not going to be able to go wherever you want to go. But understand that that's what the essence of being a disciple is, is dying to self every day. And Peter needed to continue to die to self. He needed to repent of his self-reliance and his pride and his confidence in the flesh and follow Christ. And following Christ for Peter meant following him all the way to crucifixion. John points out in verse 19 that there's an indication in this cryptic statement that, Peter is, that Jesus is making to Peter of the kind of death that Peter was going to die. 
And this actually isn't obvious to us reading it in English, but in the Greek culture, to stretch out your hands was a euphemism for being crucified. And so John says Peter knew somehow from what Jesus had said that he was headed towards crucifixion himself. And the early church father Tertullian and the early church historian Eusebius tell us that Peter was crucified on a cross under Emperor Nero during that persecution 30 years later. Think about it. Peter lived with this cloud over his head, this realization that he was going to the cross eventually. Even as he got old and as he got weak and as he got ill, he knew that the cross was ultimately where he'd go. And Jesus says, do you trust me, Peter? Do you believe that my will is what's best for your life? Am I really the Lord of your life? Do you trust me? Isn't that what a love relationship is about? Every relationship in your life that involves love, isn't it ultimately about trust? And Jesus is saying to Peter, do you trust me? If so, then follow me. Put your life in my hands. Depend upon me. Go all the way that I am leading, even to the cross itself. You know, Peter had boasted that he would lay down his life for Christ, and one day he would, but it wouldn't be in pride. It would be in humility and love and worship. And by his death, he would glorify God, Peter, Jesus says. One more quick lesson at the end that John throws in here. And being, you know, this is referring to John, so he witnessed this himself. It, it appears that from this little breakfast meeting around the campfire, Jesus and Peter walked off and Jesus continued to talk with Peter and it says that Peter looked back and saw John, his good friend John. Remember, John was there at the beginning with Peter when they first became disciples. His good friend John, he looks back at him, having just been given this prophecy about his future, and he looks at John and says, Lord, what about him? He wants to know John's future too. Interestingly, tradition tells us that John, the Apostle John is the only one who wasn't martyred for the faith. He didn't die uh, under persecution. He died in exile, we're told. But Peter wanted to know, because that's the kind of guy Peter was. He wanted to know the future. You know, he's got to be in charge. He's got to be responsible. So, Lord, just tell me the future. Tell me John's future, too, so I can be there for him. And Jesus says, Peter, it's none of your business. I'm your Lord, and I have a path for you, but I also have a calling and a path for him, and it's not the same as yours. He'll have to trust me just like you have to trust me. And that's what it means to follow Christ, is to give up that self-control. He doesn't tell us the future. You know, that's the pagans always want to know the future. They go to mediums, they go to fortune tellers. Tell me the future, because if I know the future, I can control my life. Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you the future. You need to trust me. I'm the Lord. Follow me. Peter had control issues. That was his personality. He wanted to control the circumstances around him. And Jesus says, you need to give up that control and follow me. When my kids were little, I would, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, I'd say, hey, everybody get in the car. And they'd all pile into the back seat of the van or whatever. And I'd get in the driver's seat and we'd start to drive and usually it didn't take this long, but one of them would say, where are we going, Daddy? I would just smile. And then about a couple of minutes later, Daddy, where are we going? And it was always the same two. Because I had two that had control issues that just wouldn't give up. The whole trip, to, until we got to wherever we were going, whether it was 
to the vet or to the ice cream shop or wherever we were going. Two of them would never give up. They kept asking, Daddy, where are we going? Until the moment where we were there and they could stop asking. I did that on purpose because I wanted to teach the ones with control issues. They needed to trust me. They needed to trust authority. They need to know what it meant to follow because one day I wouldn't be there as authority and the Lord Jesus Christ would be the only authority. Would they trust him and follow him without knowing the future? We walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus says, if you love me, love one another. But you notice the the only, only other way he ever said that sentence? If you love me, do what I command. Love him by loving his people and love him by doing his will because you trust his will, because you know his will is best for you. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to love Jesus. He is here. He's more here than you realize. This is Mother's Day, and my mother's not with us anymore. She's gone to be with the Lord because she trusted in Christ. And I can't see her, I can't hear her, I can't touch her, but I still love her. But I can't love her in the way that I love Jesus because she's not with me. I have to wait to be with her one day, and I will be, by his grace. But I can certainly love Jesus because he's here with me. He's with me more than my wife is with me. He's with me more than my kids are with me. He's with me more than anyone. And I can love him the way that he has told me to love him. Come to him daily on my knees to receive his grace so that my heart can grow, so that I can love him more. And then out of that love that he's given me as a gift, then I can love his people. And I can love and follow him where he leads because his will is perfect and he works all things together for good for those whom he loves. Let's pray. Father, our love is so weak, and there's still so much of Peter in us, so much of that old man, the one that wants to rely on ourselves and our gifts, our abilities, our resources, our training, our education. Lord, these things are all meaningless if we haven't given them over to you. Father, teach us to receive grace from Christ. Grow our hearts to love him more. And out of that love for him, teach us to love one another far better than we do. And to follow Christ wherever he leads, even to death itself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.